well and, and to navigate all that's happening in our world with wisdom and with grace. So that's what we're going to be talking about here in this series. So here at the beginning of the series, I want to issue some disclaimers. And uh, some of these disclaimers will have to be repeated. Um, and so you'll, you'll probably hear me say a number of these things repeatedly. Number one, I am very likely going to say something that offends you. No matter where you fall on the political spectrum, from as liberal as possible to as conservative as possible, wherever you fall, chances are at various points through this series, I'm going to say things that make you angry. All right, so just be prepared for that. My goal is not to intentionally make anyone angry. I'm not trying to stir anything up. But because we have people from different parts of the political spectrum represented in the church, something's going to make somebody angry. I would ask that when that happens, you respond with patience and grace, knowing that I'm not trying to push anyone's buttons. I'm trying to get us to see biblical wisdom. So... Just know that I'm probably going to tick you off. Number two, uh, and it's funny that I even have to say this, I do not hate America. There are things that I will say during this series that make you go, ooh, does this guy hate America? And the answer is no, okay? At no point will I ever... uh, be someone who can't stand our country, okay? And so if I do say things that seem a bit unpatriotic, it is not because I'm trying to denigrate our country. It is because I want us to make sure that we have our priorities in order, that we have our priorities on scripture and on the kingdom where they should be. And so there, there is not an effort to put the nation down, but rather to lift the kingdom up. And number three, I am not going to tell you how to vote. I am not going to tell you who to vote for, who not to vote for. All I am seeking to do is to give you what I believe are some practical principles of wisdom, and then I'll let you apply those. Okay, so what I'm going to focus on as we're talking about some very touchy subjects are what I believe to be biblical principles, and that is it. At no point am I going to say, now go vote for this candidate, or don't go vote for that candidate, and I'm probably going to say negative things about all the candidates, so I am not trying to influence your vote any particular way. What I am trying to influence is your heart towards the Lord, okay? So, let me give a brief overview of where we will be heading specifically. Um, Six biblical principles for living out your faith in your civic life. And I'm going to put this in a handout to actually give you a hard copy of this next week. I was planning on doing that this week, but then I ran out of time. Um, But this is what we're going to be going over in the next six weeks. These are the principles that we're going to, to try to apply. First, what we'll be talking about tonight is that we serve a king, not a president. We serve a king, not a president. Of course, you know who the king's name is, Jesus. And so I want to take this opportunity tonight to focus our hearts there so that we can make sure that we have our hope in the right place in Christ, not in a candidate. Next week, the principle that we'll talk about is we hope in a kingdom, not in a country. 
We hope in a kingdom, not in a country. Our hope is in the eternal kingdom of Jesus Christ. It is not in our nation or any other nation uh, for that matter. Our eternal hope as Christians does not have to do with any type of political system. Our hope as Christians is built solely on the kingdom of God. And so we're going to talk about placing our hearts there. In week three, the principle is that we fight for change from the heart outward, not from the hands inward. And what that uh, message will focus on will be how the gospel fights for social justice, how heart change fights for um, every ill that society faces. And you might hear some people erroneously say in the church, well, what we really need to do is just preach the gospel. Yes, we really do need to preach the gospel, but there is also work to be done. But those two things cannot be separated. And when we look at, for example, the early church in the Roman Empire, what we will see is how the early church turned the Roman Empire upside down. And they did it with the gospel. And that will be our goal as well. Number four, we fight against the enemy of people, not against people as our enemy. We fight against the enemy of people, not against people as our enemy. I think you'll agree with me that in this particularly um, tense climate that we're in, shots are being fired all the time. A a two-second scroll down your news feed in Facebook will show you all of the yelling matches. And many times, it's Christians that are posting things that are just completely ridiculous. I, I I can't even count the number of times I've seen a post by a fellow believer in Jesus completely attacking, and I'm like, what, what are you trying to accomplish here? How is this productive? And so we're going to talk about the fact that our battle, as Scripture says, is not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities of darkness, against the enemy. And people, wherever they are on the other side, quote unquote, are not the enemy. The enemy is the enemy, not people. Number five, we participate in democracy, not try to build a theocracy. In other words, our duty is to the kingdom of God for eternity. We're not trying to create a government system that forces the gospel down people's throats. We're not trying to marry church and state. That's not our goal. And so we'll talk about the balance of legislating morality. We'll talk about the balance of voting towards principles without trying to put a theocracy in in place. And finally, number six, we are guided by prayer, not panic. We are guided by prayer, not panic. There are far too many Christians who are losing their minds right now who have all of their hope invested in a political process, all of their hope invested in a Supreme Court justice or a presidential candidate or a policy or whatever, fearing that if their vote doesn't accomplish what they hope it accomplishes, everything is lost, all is lost, and that is not how we are to operate. We are guided by prayer, not by panic, not by fear, 
not by setting an example to other people when they see us that we don't have a solid foundation to stand on. So those are the six principles that we will be talking about over the next six weeks. And I hope that this is going to be relevant to you. I hope that this is going to hit uh, home for each one of us. That this will fill a need in this time over the next six very, very tense weeks that we are uh, in store for. So today we start with principle number one. We serve a king, not a president. In the 1880s, America was still in the process of reuniting after the Civil War. The Civil War, of course, ended in 1865. And at this time, in the 1880s, there were still a lot of holdouts who were espousing Confederate ideals, who were opposed to the idea of a unified nation. And in response to this, there were a lot of people who were arrested, but they could be released from jail if they recited an oath of allegiance to a United States of America. And so as time passed, this idea began to morph from just having prisoners recite an oath to beginning with childhood. Soon, the nation would celebrate and commemorate the 400-year anniversary of Christopher Columbus arriving in the New World. And so Congress convened and decided that part of that celebration would be to have patriotic ceremonies held in public schools across the nation. And these ceremonies would include things like history lessons, patriotic songs, and a pledge of allegiance. Francis Bellamy was tasked with writing the pledge. Francis Bellamy was a former Baptist minister. At this point in his career, working for the most popular magazine in the United States, which was called The Youth's Companion. Bellamy just so happened also to be a socialist. And in this magazine, he wrote articles that had some socialist leanings. He said that capitalism... And that every alien immigrant of inferior race were causing an erosion in traditional values. And that a pledge of allegiance would ensure that the distinctive principles of true Americanism will not perish as long as free public education endures. And so, with that spirit, he wrote the first version of the Pledge of Allegiance. Notably missing from this version of the Pledge of Allegiance were two key phrases. The words, the United States of America, ironically, and the words, under God. The former uh, of the United States of America was added in 1924, just in case there were any immigrants who recited the Pledge of Allegiance and uh, they were talking about their own flag we had to make sure that we're talking about the correct flag, the flag of the United States of America. And so those words were added. And then in 1954, Congress added the words under God in order to distinguish the United States from godless communism. Bellamy's granddaughter opposed adding the words under God. 
because she said that her grandfather would have been staunchly opposed to it, which is, of course, ironic for a minister, to say the least. But Congress argued that one of the things that makes our nation distinct is that it is guided by a creator. And so adding these words would not create a national religion, but instead would recognize a unique trait about our history, and that is the role which faith in God had in its forming. To this day, school children still recite the pledge. All of us, I'm sure, know it by heart and have said it uh, approximately a million times. Now, my goal here is not to demean the pledge. As I stated in disclaimer number two, I do not hate America, nor do I oppose patriotism. I think that having a unified national ideal is overall a positive, and that it's totally fine to be a proud American. And I have, by the way, incredible respect and appreciation for all of the men and women who have served in the military in order to uphold um, our nation's safety. The reason I bring up the pledge is simply its irony. The Pledge of Allegiance is an example of a memorized and recited set of phrases that we say as a nation that we believe, but aren't actually a reflection of reality. Another example of this would be the Lord's Prayer. Many people know it. Many people recite it. But very few people actually understand its meaning, and even fewer seek to live it out. It's easy to recite the Lord's Prayer, but in most people's lives, it isn't actually true. Few people are seeking to hallow God's name in the way that they live. Few are seeking his kingdom. Few are seeking his will above all else. Few are repentant of their sin or satisfied with daily bread. Even fewer are willing to forgive the sins of others against them. Few desire that God would have preeminent glory. But it's easy to memorize and recite and believe that we've checked the religious box. And so the Pledge of Allegiance has this same sort of hypocrisy. It's not that the words themselves are bad per se, though we can argue about whether or not that's true. It's more that the words don't reflect what is actually the case. And the greatest example of that is this phrase, one nation under God. Because this phrase assumes two things. One, that we are unified. And two, that God is the source of that unity. Now I don't need to explain to you that neither of those things are true of America. We are certainly not unified. Again, any scroll down Facebook will show you that. And we're certainly not as a nation looking to submit to the will of God. And even though there are many who want unity, many who are seeking after it and fighting for it, for most, submission to God is not the source of that effort. Now, I don't want to just stand up here and wax eloquent about the nation because my concern primarily is with the church. And the issue that I have with the church in America as it relates to this is that many in the church are far more concerned with political victory 
than they are with the kingdom of God. The problem is in the church, we have begun to place our hope in politics. We have begun to seek a better future, not in the promises of the gospel, but in the promises of a political party. We have begun to believe that if we are to fulfill the Great Commission, we have to vote in the right people, lobby for the right policies. We've placed our hope in a country, not in a kingdom. We've placed our hope in a president, not in the king. We have pledged our allegiance to the flag, but not to the God who we say is over the nation. And so that is the first place that we need to set our attention. As we are prayerfully seeking how to live out our faith, how to obey the word of God, how to glorify Christ, this is the first place we have to start. We serve a king, not a president. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm 146. As you're turning there, I want to reiterate once more, I am not going to tell you who to vote for or not who to vote for. I will not tell you where to place your ballot, but I will tell you where to place your heart. Psalm 146. We'll be reading the whole thing from verses 1 through 10. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoner free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. So, if you're taking notes, we're going to jump right in to point number one. We ought to be defined by our worship, not our worry. We ought to be defined by our worship, not our worry. This psalm begins and ends with the same words. Praise the Lord. Everything in between that's said, in between praise the Lord and praise the Lord, is couched in that statement. Praise the Lord. In the Hebrew, this term praise the Lord is hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, O my soul. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. So what we see here is that it begins with the attitude that as long as I am alive, what you will hear coming out of my mouth is praise for the king. That is what I want my life to be defined by. By hallelujah. Is that what people see from us. 
Is that what people see in the church? Right now, today, if you scroll on Facebook and you look at all the posts from Christians, is what you see, hallelujah, oh my soul, I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Is that what we are seeing most? I would argue that no, that is not what we are seeing most. One of the things that I see most is a lot of hand-wringing, a lot of worrying, a, a lot of fear. Again, we, we, we're looking at a political season that is very, very tense. But the thing that we're hoping for is that if we put the right person in office who makes the right decisions and the right choices and puts the right people in place, and I'm using the word right very loosely here, of course, we're thinking, man, if we just get the right political victories... Then we can relax. Then America has hope. Then our nation will be okay. We just, we just got to get through this six weeks and, and, and white knuckle this and, and hopefully we're going to arrive. And we got to make sure that the other side doesn't win. Because if they do, oh, our nation is doomed. That's not the attitude of the psalmist. That, that's not what it begins and ends with. It begins and ends with hallelujah. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Hallelujah. Notice that it does not say hallelujah when things are going my way. Hallelujah when my candidate is in office. Hallelujah when the policies that I think should be in place are in place. When everything is sunshine and rainbows. No, it says as long as there's breath in my lungs... I'm singing praises to God. What people will hear from me first and last is hallelujah. And everything that's in between is going to be affected by that attitude. I start with Jesus. I end with Jesus. And everything else in between is trust in him. That is where we have to start. Now, one of the things that this political season can accomplish in us, one of the things that it can aid us in is this season can help us do a self-audit, self-reflection. There, there are certain times when we say we believe something, but the circumstances around us then begin to reveal what is actually true. You know, the orange gets squeezed and the juice comes out. You may consistently say, my trust is in Jesus. I, I hope in the Lord. But as you think about November and beyond, your true place of faith can be revealed. I urge you to, to consider, are you placing too much faith in a politician, in, in a party, in a policy or, or group of policies, in, in a position, in a pundit? What voice is speaking loudest to you right now? Where is your heart right now is it in hallelujah praise the lord oh my soul or is it in dear god we are in such trouble what are we going to do if all you do is watch the news if all you do is scroll social media you will be inundated with nothing but fear and worry and anxiety but if you inundate yourself in the word, if you log off the screen and you pick up the book and you soak your soul in this, 
I promise you that where your heart can have peace is in a hallelujah. Um, be on the lookout later this week. I'm going to put up an article on our Facebook page that comes from the Gospel Coalition. And this, uh, this article is called 21 Questions to Ask to Examine if Politics Has Become an Idol. And so it's a very handy, useful article. It won't take you long to read, just a few minutes. And you, you can do a self-reflection questions 1 through 21, and, and, and this, this can help you reveal in your own life, am I putting my hope in this, or am I putting my hope in the king? And so be on the lookout for that this week. But as long as there is breath in our lungs, we should be singing hallelujah. Hallelujah, oh my soul. Point number two, presidents, Policies and parties will all pass away. Presidents, policies, and parties will all pass away. Look with me at verses 3 and 4. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there's no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. There's no mincing words here. There's no beating around the bush. There's nothing that's unclear. It is very cut and dry. Do not put your trust in princes. In our context, of course, that would be, do not put your trust in presidents, in candidates, in politicians, in political leaders. Do not because in them there is no salvation. It says, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth, and on that very day, his plans perish. Now, I want you to notice that these verses say nothing about the quality of the prince. It doesn't say, put not your trust in bad princes, only put your trust in good ones. It doesn't say that. It says nothing about the quality of the prince. We know that as far as leaders go, some are very good. Some accomplish very good things. Some are worthy of the respect and the support of their people. Others, not so good. Others are terrible leaders who are not worthy of that respect. There are some who are evil, who do wicked things. But this verse doesn't tell us, figure out which kind of leader they are. And if they're a good one, put your hope in them. Put your hope in the good ones. No, it says no matter what, good or bad, the work of these leaders, it's temporary. It's it's transient. And someone else is going to come along right behind them and just change everything that they did and do their own thing. Not exactly a great recipe for eternal hope. It says that in them there is no salvation. No salvation. Now, there might be temporary aid. There, there might be some very good things. There might be some worthy things that are, that are worth fighting for and, and worth supporting. But one thing there will certainly not be is salvation. And there are too many people, 
too many people who are viewing a presidential candidate like a messiah who is going to usher in a life filled with glory and righteousness. No president can do that. No leader can do that. A president can accomplish some good things, but he cannot save you, ever. So if your hope is in someone in whom there is no salvation, it's empty, it's vain, it's pointless. Charles Spurgeon put it like this. He says, this is the narrow estate of man, his breath, his earth, and his thoughts. And this is his threefold climax therein. His breath goeth forth, to his earth he returns, and his thoughts perish. Is this a being to be relied upon? Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. To trust it would be still a greater vanity. I love that. And yet that is exactly what so many of us in the church have done. Trust in a vanity. So many of us have trusted in a vanity, have trusted in a limited person, have put all our stock, all our hope, all our eggs in that basket, and we're saying, this person will save us. And that is not the message of Scripture. Now, we're going to talk more about this uh, in week number five, but I don't want us to, uh, to get the idea that I'm trying to say we should be apolitical. Right? I'm not saying that we should retreat completely and just pretend that the political process isn't there. That in and of itself is a political move. We don't retreat from the political process. But we need to be a lot more wise about the political process. We need to be a bit more discerning. We need to interact with the political process with a bit more of our eyes wide open. Right? For example... We really need to stop pretending that politicians are benevolent representatives who are fighting for the causes of their constituency. Politicians represent themselves. That is a fact. I'm not saying that there are no good politicians, that there are no good people who are politicians. There are, just like there are good people who are lawyers, believe it or not. I'm sure that there are people who are politicians who are trying to do the right thing in most cases. But as a system, this is not a group of like-minded people who are seeking the best possible life for Americans. It's an all-out war. It's an all-out war with multiple sides pitted against each other. And they do not care about what is best for you and me. They care about staying in power for as long as possible. And getting as much control as they possibly can. And getting points for their team. That is how the system is set up. The sooner we recognize that, the better. They are not fighting to give us a great life. They are fighting to stay in power. No matter what politician we're talking about, they're fighting for their team, okay? Home team is the party, not the people. We also need to recognize the danger of what a British ethicist named James Munford calls package deal ethics. Put simply, that means that there is increasing pressure 
for you to take each political party just as a package deal. You just have to accept all of the people and the policies and, and fall completely in line. To be bipartisan or to be nonpartisan is political suicide. Because you don't want the other team to win. There's a requirement that's there for everyone to be completely 100% with their party, with their group, with their subset of the culture. We got to be 100% here with, with no exceptions or else you face being canceled. For example, last year, Ellen DeGeneres was photographed sitting next to George W. Bush at a Dallas Cowboys football game. The two seemed to be enjoying one another's company, laughing at each other's jokes. Short clip is shown of them interacting very cordially. George W. Bush sitting with his wife, Ellen DeGeneres sitting with her wife. And yet the two very cordially interacting and enjoying one another's company. Pretty cool, right? You have two people on opposite sides of the political spectrum who seem to be very friendly. That's a good thing, right? Nope, not in this culture. She, Ellen DeGeneres, faced harsh criticism from her own demographic. Because the only proper way to treat someone like George W. Bush is to hate them, to spew vitriol, to avoid them, to spit on the ground upon which they walk. That's the only way. You can't be friendly with the other side. You have to be 100% aligned with your side. Now, let's not just pretend that this is only happening on the left. It's also happening on the right. Uh, For example, when Mitt Romney joined with the Democrats in voting for the impeachment of the president, he did so because he said he valued his principles over his party and because his faith was most important to him. But to do so, he was branded as a Benedict Arnold. He was called a pathetic disgrace because he's supposed to be a Republican after all. God forbid you put your principles over your party. You can't do that. And so when this is the expectation that people have, when when this is the system that we're supposed to walk in, what happens is the, the, the result is that a person's faith becomes secondary to a person's political camp. And that's exactly what has happened to so many churchgoers in America. They are more Republican than they are Christian. Caring more about political victories than they do about soul winning. I was having a conversation with uh, a coworker earlier this week. And I, I mentioned the term evangelical. The term evangelical has become a political subset of culture. When you hear the term evangelical today in 2020, what it's referring to is a group of people that are a voting block. That's not what the word evangelical is supposed to mean. Evangelical is supposed to mean someone who is sharing their faith about Jesus Christ with other people. But statistics show that 90 plus percent of Christians are not actively sharing their faith with unbelievers. And so in the words of J.D. Greer, it kind of makes you wonder how we get away with using the term evangelical. We should not use that term because it's not true unless we're putting the gospel first. But so many 
evangelicals are just synonymous with conservative Republican. More concerned with making America great than making the kingdom advance. I'm sure if you were to take a poll of evangelicals and ask them, if political victory for the Democrats would mean that the kingdom of Jesus would advance, would you accept that? Too many would say no. Because to them, Republican victory is the advancement of the kingdom. In their mind, the two are one and the same. And that is wrong. It's wrong. We as Christians have no business being married to any political party. We can't do it. There is no political party that serves the kingdom of Jesus Christ. There isn't one. Now, many people might say something like, listen, I can't vote for a party that supports abortion. Or more pointedly, they might say, you cannot be a Christian and vote Democrat. I'm sure you've heard that. I have news for you. If your standard for voting is to uphold biblical principles, you can't be a Republican either. You can't vote straight Republican While the the Democratic Party, yes, has dehumanized babies, in many cases, the Republican Party has dehumanized adults. There is no political party that exists to advance the kingdom of God. Both parties are two heads of the same snake. Corrupt, money-driven, power-hungry, And so, if you are not able to stand back and critically evaluate both parties, you are standing in the wrong spot. You're in a camp, not in a kingdom. And a kingdom is where you should be. We'll talk more about this in week number four. But this has a lot to do with the way that church folk relate to each other. If you can't come into church and join in a loving six feet apart embrace with someone in the other camp, you have made politics your idol. Period. Full stop. If somebody walks in from the other side and you want to walk the other way, Politics is your idol, not Jesus. Our trust is not in a president. Our trust is not in a party. Our trust is not in a set of policies. Let me take a moment and say this one very slowly. Our trust is not in a group of judges. Our trust is in a king. Our trust is in a king. Say it with me. Our trust is in a king. Very good. Say it one more time. Our trust is in a king. Internalize that. Live that. Believe that. My trust is in a king, not in a president. Point number three. Our king is eternal And his power is limitless. 
Our king is eternal and his power is limitless. I'm thinking of John Keith's song, Limitless, Daryl. It's playing in my head. Look at verses five through seven. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. Guys, this right here is the key. Say it with me one more time. Our trust is in a king. When you trust in a prince, you are guaranteed, guaranteed to be disappointed. I promise you, you will be disappointed. Because even if that prince accomplishes some good things, even if that prince or princess accomplishes some good things, does some good stuff, there's going to be some point where they do something or say something that you know you're not okay with, that you either have to just ignore and excuse or commit political suicide. No, you just got to say, well, you know, they were joking. Uh, well, you know, they weren't really serious about that. Well, you know, everybody makes mistakes. But if somebody on the other side makes a mistake, excoriate them. I promise, if you put your trust in a prince, you will be disappointed. But when you trust in the king, he will never let you down. So let me make something abundantly clear. It does not matter who sits in the Oval Office. God sits on the throne. It does not matter who sits in the Oval Office. God sits on the throne of heaven and he ain't going nowhere. I want you to imagine the worst case politically, whatever that looks like in your mind, whatever the worst case scenario is politically, okay? The wrong person wins. They enact all of the wrong policies, All of their policies pass and go into law. Their side wins all the conceivable victories. The political win goes on to affect the next several decades. Guess what? In that scenario, God still hasn't changed. He's still the same. No matter how bad your scenario is, God is still there. Our source of hope is steady and unmoving. Our king doesn't need to be voted in. Our king doesn't need a house of representatives to agree on what should be done. Our king is supreme and preeminent and his purposes are not thwarted in the least even if the most evil government possible was in power. Consider, for example, the first three centuries of Christian history. Jesus, his disciples, their successive generations of Christians in the first three centuries were doing the kingdom work in the empire of Rome, Rome, you could spend all day talking about the evils of the Roman Empire and of its emperors. 
This is a culture that is built on power and conquest, enslaving other nations, treating women and children as expendable property, taking gladiators who were slaves themselves and throwing them into an arena to fight to the death against each other and against wild animals for the bloodthirsty entertainment of a raucous crowd. Sporting events that maimed its participants. Babies, regardless of how many days old, could just be left outside to die if they were unwanted. Slaves could be tortured or executed at whim. The court system was entirely rigged. Witnesses could be tortured. Children are ripped from their homes as early as five years old in order to be trained for war. Crucifixions are a public power play of the empire saying to everybody else, look, this is what happens if you mess with us. If you mess with us, we will crucify you on the side of the highway for everybody to see and you will be publicly humiliated. Emperors had limitless power and lived in complete and utter debauchery. To top it all off, they hated Christians and would torture and kill them just for the thrill of it. But in the midst of all that, in the middle of all that, do you think that there was ever a time that God was up in heaven, biting his nails nervously, hoping someone would come along and make Rome great again so that the church could finally do its work? No. No. God had no fear of Nero. And the church turned the world upside down even as they were being brutally oppressed. So it doesn't matter whether you vote for Trump, Biden, the Green Party candidate, Kanye West, or Mickey Mouse. It doesn't matter. Regardless of who sits in that office, God is on the throne. Period. And blessed are you if you hope in him instead of a political candidate. And if the person that you staunchly oppose gets elected, don't act like you've lost. Because if your allegiance is to the king, you never lose. You never, ever lose. If your allegiance is to the king, you don't lose. Because all he does is win. Nothing and no one can stop him. And so you need to put your faith in the right place in the king. Now on the flip side, you, you may think that your candidate is awesome. Maybe they are. Personally, I, I don't see any great choices on, on our landscape. I mean, which old white pervert is going to win? Gosh, I'm just on pins and needles waiting to find out. Maybe you think there's an awesome candidate. Maybe you're like me and you're like, we don't have any good choices. Maybe they are great. But did he or she create heaven and earth? The sea and all that is in them? It says, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. Who executes justice for the oppressed. Who gives food to the hungry. Maybe your candidate is great. 
But your candidate did not create heaven and earth. Your candidate did not fill the sea. Your, your candidate did not fill the land. Your candidate cannot keep faith and truth forever. So even if you think your candidate is great and then your candidate wins, do not fall into the belief that, oh good, now there's finally hope. Now we can finally make progress. Now we can undo the damage and work towards a better future. You already have that hope. Right now, before the election even begins, you already have that hope. You already have all that you need to work toward a better future for our nation. You have a king with an eternal gospel. And that eternal gospel will never fail and it will never, ever falter. Our king never loses. Our king is eternal and his power is limitless. Point number four, justice comes from above. Justice comes from above. Look at verses seven through nine. He who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. All of these things are worthy causes to fight for. We have hungry, oppressed, needy, prisoners, people who are bowed down, people who are widowed and fatherless. And we absolutely ought to fight for them to have a good life. And part of that is political. Absolutely. But first and foremost, we need to understand that every single one of these things is fulfilled perfectly and completely in Jesus. Where it says that God executes justice for the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. Jesus did that. Jesus executed justice by being himself executed to enact the justice of God for we who are oppressed. Jesus gives food to the hungry. One of the most famous stories in the Bible is when he takes a kid's happy meal and he feeds thousands and thousands of people. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. You remember that time where this blind guy comes up to Jesus, he spits in the mud and he puts it on his eyes and then he says, go and wash and you will see. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. When Jesus is approached by this woman who has an ailment where she can't even stand up and Jesus heals. The Lord loves the righteous. When Jesus commanded that the people will be righteous and they will be right with God, the Lord watches over the sojourners. He goes to the people who are the aliens. He upholds the widow and the fatherless and the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. This is all about Christ right here. It's all about Jesus. So it's, it's right to fight to meet the felt needs of others. 
But when we do so, we must do so with the intention of meeting their greatest need. The need for the God who does these things eternally. We, we live in a temporal world. As we talked about before, every policy will perish. That doesn't mean that we should be fatalistic. That we should just give up and say, ah, oh, well, what's going to happen is going to happen. Yes, fight for what is right. Fight for what is right. Scripture tells us, if your neighbor comes to you and says, I'm hungry and I've got nothing to wear, what are we commanded to do? Give them food. Give them shelter. Give them clothing. We are commanded to meet felt needs. But we're commanded to do so with the knowledge that a felt physical need being met should be a bridge to the gospel being preached. Because whatever we do in this world will pass away. We can give a person food and their stomach will be filled. But if they walk away with their soul still empty, what have we accomplished? Jesus, whenever he, melt, whenever he met a felt need, also matched that with the truth of the gospel, with the hope of the eternal kingdom, with the hope that in that kingdom, everything will be made right. Everything will be perfect. Everything will be unified. When we look at the picture in the New Testament uh, of, of the, the new kingdom, what we find is people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And there's this little verse that says, the kings of the earth come to and fro in and out of its gates. We have every culture unified, coming together in the one who is just, the one who is right, the one who accomplishes the eternal hope. That is what we must fight for. That is what we, what we must realize, that no hope can be placed in, in, in righting a political wrong for an oppressed group of people. Yes, we should fight for that. But we have to recognize that justice comes from above. A hope is in a king. Finally, point number five. The reign of the king will never end. The reign of the king will never end. Verse 10. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Y'all, he's not getting down off the throne. It's not going to happen. There will never come a day when he's not in control. There will never come a day when he is afraid of what we're doing down here, where he's surprised at what's happening, where, where a political uh, candidate goes into office and God is up in heaven like, oh no, now what do I do? That will never, ever happen. The Lord will reign forever. In contrast to the prince who when his breath departs, he returns to the earth and on that very day, his plans perish. Those plans perish. This God never will. His kingdom never ends. His kingdom never falters. And that is the source of our hope. 
whomever you may vote for, for whatever reasons, good ones, bad ones, or anywhere in between, regardless of who is sworn in in this election, I can promise you beyond a shadow of a doubt, they will perish. They will pass away and their plans will go with them. Matter of fact, their plans will probably perish before they even do. I mean, how many times do we see a new political regime take power and immediately they begin to dismantle what was right behind them? It happens all the time, especially if there's a party switch, right? What's on the chopping block from the last guy? Let's get our way now. That's gonna happen. So if all your hope is in what's going to happen in this election, if all your hope is in, well, gosh, this Supreme Court justice will affect the court for decades. Do you know how short decades are in the, in the scope of eternity? A drop in the bucket. Again, I'm not saying that we shouldn't fight for good things, for moral things, yes, but our hope is not in those things. Our allegiance is not to those things. Our our source of eternal hope is the king who will reign forever to all generations. So if you want to pass down to the next generation a better future, if you want to pass down to the next generation a better life, a life with more hope, a life with more justice, a life with more peace. It's here. It's here. Not in a, in a president. Our hope is in a king. In a king whose reign is forever, not in a president who will perish. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the truth of your word. Thank you that your reign will last forever. God, I pray that you would help us to put our hope in that. But I know that some of the things that I have said may have rubbed some people the wrong way. But Lord, I pray that you would bring peace. That you'd bring conviction. Truth. That you would guide every one of us into the truth. Lord, I pray for any person who has placed their hope in a, in a president rather than a king. Lord, I pray that if there's any person under the sound of my voice here, online, on the podcast, who has never placed their hope in you, King Jesus, may tonight be the night that you draw them to yourself. May tonight be the night that they say, I surrender to the king. Lord, I pray that we would be representatives of the kingdom that we would be bastions of hope, that we would shine the lighthouse into this tense climate, that what people see from us is hallelujah, hallelujah, oh my soul, to the king who reigns forever. Lord, as we sing your praises, may our hearts respond. As we sing, Lord, I pray that our hearts will be filled with the power of your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would stand, we'll... Uh, begin our closing song.